again, this is the first service of our Advent series. The title is The Joy of Every Longing Heart. Um, and I don't know about you, um, but Christmas brings around for me a, a mix of emotions. Um, it's very, very sad, but a big, 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 big part of my hope for a joyous Christmas has always been intimately related to our Christmas lights, right? If the lights worked, I had hope for the season. Now, trees that are pre-lit definitely helped, right? But even then, every time I open it up, this year as my wife opened it up, because I was sitting on the couch and I couldn't move, all I could think of is like the middle section won't hurt. I, it won't light. I just know it, right? And it's all pre-lit and there's nothing that we're going to be able to do about it. We literally have to go get a new tree. And I, I, was just, I was just stressing it. And then they all lit up. And I'm like, I don't know how that happens. There's no connecting between the parts that fall apart or to take apart. And you put them together and somehow the electricity. And Diana, it's like, I don't know how it works. But it worked. Just be happy that they worked. I mean, and again, the tree is great, pre-lit. But what about the wreath lights, right? All seven of them. And the exterior lights that are on the roof, right? Snowing an icy roof. It's crazy. It is crazy. And the lights around the windows and the, and the porch and the front door and the, and the tiny little lights in our tiny little Christmas village and all the shrubbery lights and all the Christmas-themed blow-up lawn figures, right? From the Nativity to Frosty, Rudolph, and the Peanuts gang. All of which, all of those lights, all of those things, right? They won't work if the lights don't work, right? They can't be seen. Don't get me started on the whole extension cord fiasco, right? What a nightmare. Like we go out and we go shopping for extension cords when Christmas rolls around. I don't know how many we need. I don't know what kind we need, but we will need every conceivable kind of extension cord to make all of this work. And, and again, every year, whew, and when I'm finally done, I come in, my fingers hurt, they're cold, they're blue, and I'm just, I have hope, right? Hope, hope is restored. Everything, everything is lit. And what makes it all worse like rubbing salt into a wound or, or lemon into the back of your hand after you've secured the lights of the Christmas tree. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The feel on the back of your hand, they're just like destroyed. Is when my wife comes in and says, stop being a big baby. That's called gaslighting. I don't know if you've heard this term recently. It's a brand new term for me. I, I, I had a whole bunch of weird ideas about what it was. I was wrong on every count. Right? It's a new term. Had to look it up. Has nothing to do with your gas fireplace, stove, or anything else that uses gas. Right? It's when somebody denies your pain or your experience and making you think that you're not normal. Right? Denying your experience, denying what you felt. Ah, you big baby. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere in our world, but it's truly, truly dangerous and destructive when it plays out in our spiritual lives. Right, as individuals and as a whole community. Right, to the sinner, this is what it sounds like. What a loser. Right, just stop sinning. Just stop it. Mrs. Reagan, right? Don't do it. Stop it. Just stop it. And then we can all be happy. Let's just, let's just get to the point where we're all happy. Right? You being sad is just bringing everybody down. And to the sinned against, This is those on the, what's called the backside of the cross. Normally we think of the cross, most of our thoughts go to our sins when we think about the cross and the cross addressing our sins. But we're finding out more and more from our writers and our theologians that there's something called redemption on the backside of the cross. This is when you haven't sinned, but somebody has sinned horribly, horribly against you. 
and done irreparable harm to you. So we gaslight them, right? Couldn't have been that bad, right? Just get over it, and then we can all get to being happy, right? Because that's the season. And you being down is not being helpful. But we all know that's just not how it works, right? The joy of every longing heart is the title of our series, and that says something. It screams something. It screams that before there's joy, there's a longing in our hearts. There's, there's needs that need to be addressed. And the amount of joy one experiences is intimately related to the need or the depth of that longing in our hearts. Right? Just like Jesus told Simon the Pharisee, right? The woman, this woman is forgiven Many, 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 many sins. So guess what? She is grateful, 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 grateful. If her sin had been tiny, her gratefulness would have been tiny also. Same idea, same principle applies here. Music group passenger gets it right in a way that anybody can understand. If you're sitting here, you're watching on TV, you know your Bible, or maybe you don't know your Bible at all. Everybody can understand this. Here are the words. Well, you only need the light when it's burning low. You only miss the sun when it starts to snow. Here's where it gets a little personal. You only know you love her when you let her go. You only know you've been high when you're feeling low. You only hate the road when you're missing home. You only know you love her when you let her go. Right? They get that. They, they, they understand. They, I mean, I could have stopped right here. Darkness and light. Lament and hope. They're related right? Far more than we recognize or even, even want to admit, right? And that's a huge, huge problem if we can't admit that. We live in a culture that struggles to admit any kind of weakness, right? We just don't make space for negative feelings, right? That's a quick way to get fired from your job if you're the negative one all the time. You can be good at your job, but if you can't express joy in the workplace, if you're the downer in the workplace, right, you'll be gotten rid of, doesn't matter how good you are at your job. You're, you're bringing the whole workforce down. So that's just like not allowed, right? Keep that at home. That's private. Don't bring that into the public space. Very few employers offer bereavement leave. And those who do only offer it for a few days and they restrict it to some very, very, very close family members, right? We're pushed and we're encouraged to rush past the emotions of anger and fear and sadness and grief, all of those emotions that trauma bring. Society asks us just to press them down, and keep them there. It might be the reason why so many people believe that God's too busy we're unwilling to listen to our negative feelings and our negative emotions, right? We begin to feel that we can't be angry with God, right? We worry about expressing too much, right? We might get in trouble, not only with God, but anybody listening. Got to be careful about that. Come to find out, with darkness and light and with lament and hope, right? Two, two sets of opposites. We can't appreciate one without acknowledging and fully understanding the other. So before we get into the joy of the season, in fact, to what brought on the joy of the season in the first place, we want to look, we want to pause just at that, that longing heart part. When the Bible expresses the full scope of a longing heart, right, from the initial 
something happened to me, the anger, the denial, the frustration, all of that, all the way to a finally even screaming at God, all the way to a final acceptance of it. The whole, the whole scope of that longing heart in the Bible, we call this a lament. We're going to look at a lament this morning because we learn that the deep lament usually precedes the greatest joy. A little understanding kind of what lament means in my mind as I started this passage. I don't know about you, when you think of lament, I always think about either complaining or asking for forgiveness. Right? In my mind, kind of growing up, that was the, the gist of the lament. It gave us words to complain to God. Somehow they were acceptable. Right? I'm not allowed to come up with words on my own. I've got to read a poem, a psalm somehow. Right? And so I, I complain, and then, I, and then when I'm done complaining, I seek forgiveness. Right? That's, that's lament. I'm sorry and you feel for it and you lament I'm so so sorry I'm sorry about the damage I've done I've, so forth there's so 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 much more in lament we're going to look at that this morning what it entails and then we're going to take a look at a psalm of lament as an example so first what's so important about the practice of lamenting we can start with this idea that to lament means to be honest Right? And we talk about this season of light and Jesus Christ being light. When we lament, we let in the lightness of Christ. We shine a light in the dark corners of our life where maybe no light has ever shone before and that's why it's so, so dark in there. Or maybe we don't want the light to be shown in there because we like what's in there, even if it's dark. So to lament is to be honest, first of all. Again, what we keep in the dark never gets healed, no matter how painful it is. But counseling, I've been to counseling, and the big deal is there. You talk it out. You say it, right? You name reality, and that's, that's the start, right? This is what's happened to me, or this is what I've done to somebody. And you have to say it. There's something very, very, very powerful about that, to say it. Naming reality. Pastor David I don't know if you guys were listening to his messages. He kind of had to go through that this past summer. And he was very, very honest with Dan and I in our meetings. He was honest with you when he was up here preaching. He went through some hard, hard times, some real darkness. And he named it. And he asked you to help him name it. And the beautiful thing, just like what I'm saying right here, he was able to come out of it, come out of it in a beautiful place. But I don't think this season that he went through will ever be forgotten. It'll be not something that he avoids, or I don't want to think about that, but I have a feeling this is going to be a very, very valuable and beautiful thing in his memory as he grows older, that he, he went through this. He named the reality, and God met him where he was. From what I've been told, when doctors have to inform someone of a death, they have to use the word die. They have to use the word dead. Right? Because people in that situation, a loved one, right, they'll grasp at anything. And if you're not perfectly clear as the doctor, they will, not intentionally, but kind of intentionally, misinterpret your words because it'll give them hope. They're, they're grasping for straws at that point. So doctors are told, man, just name the reality. People have to know. Naming reality is key for those experiencing loss and grief and trauma. All right, we know this. The part that we skipped 
the part that we sometimes don't pay attention to is the opposite side of that coin. What happens when we ignore the realities in our life? I'll tell you what, three things right away happen. We wreck friendships. Right? Our friends come to us in, in hurt. And how do we respond? We gaslight them. Get over it. <laughs> Quick way to lose friends. It's also key to wrecking the mental, emotional, and spiritual health of any remaining friends that you do have at that point. Right? You deny them their experience and they're going to suffer even more. Right? They're going to begin to question questions that can't be answered, that there's no way to answer. And then finally, it's the key to wrecking havoc in your own mental, emotional, and spiritual life. Right? You bottle that stuff up inside, the realities that need to be named, right? We all know this. Man, you got issues from top to bottom. It's your, your body revolts, right? Because you've got to get this toxin out of you, right? You've got to name the reality of the sin that you committed or has been sinned against you. And remember, no gaslighting, right? Doesn't help. Just opens the door to a whole bunch of other issues down the road. So again, as we lament... Especially when we lament together, it helps those listening. Kind of a second thing here, right? Collective healing can happen when someone hears and they recognize their own story in somebody else's story, right? For the first time in their lives, they can say, oh, it's not me. It's not just me. I thought I was the only one with that issue. I thought I was a freak. I thought I was abnormal. And I guess everybody deals with this. Guess what? When we do this, when we hear other people, and we, when we, and, and lament brings on confession. It brings on repentance. When we, we're really honest with our hearts and we dig deep to where we're hurt, right? We, we kind of tend to come out at the other end, either scarred and broken, and, or we come out open and vulnerable to what God wants to do in our lives. It makes repentance, it makes confession a whole lot easier. God, I guess everybody's confessing this thing. I guess, I guess it's safe for me to confess it too. I'm not going to be labeled, oh, look, the freak. Guess what he did? It's like, no, everybody did that. When a community laments, when they acknowledge the truth together, the whole community heals together. And the third thing, at, at Christmas... Again, the whole point of this, this message, right? If we think of the many reasons that Jesus came, right? If we're really honest, we have to pause for a moment and, and just ponder, right? Just what all his incarnation, right? God with us, Emmanuel. What did Emmanuel, God with us, cost God? What all did that entail? the king of glory clothing himself in the dirt and the dust of humanity. Not to mention eventual rejection, betrayal, abandonment, humiliation, and the horrible crucifixion. See, right? We have to lament the cost of our redemption, right? Why should I gain from his reward? Why should Jesus die for me? I think unintentionally we tend to gaslight Jesus. I know that's what I did when I saw the Passion film. It got to all the horrible, 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 bloody parts, and I was, in my mind, I was like, come on, let's get past this. And I, and I told my pastor, 
He said, how'd you like the film? I said, well, they went along a bit, bit long with the suffering. And like I've told you this before, he turned on me. He turned on me so fast, he said, you don't understand the depth of your sin then. It's like, whoa, whoa. But he was right. What my sin cost. I don't think I should run past that, should ignore that, hurry past that. It's like Jesus is on the cross and he cries out twice. We know this, right? We want to tell him, hey, hurry up and get to the point where you say it's finished so you're not suffering anymore so I don't have to feel anymore. But if we're honest, we hear his first cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cost. And once we fully recognize the reality of our own sorrow, our brokenness, right, opens us to recognize and empathize with the brokenness of the world. It's like suddenly we're looking in a mirror in an opposite way. We see something in ourselves and suddenly we recognize it in the world and we empathize where before we judged, right? When you're suffering from that thing that you once judged, suddenly you don't judge it, <laughs> right? There's a reason, there's an explanation because you're now suffering for that same thing. Hard to criticize what you just admitted about yourself. Again, many times we finally experience something. And that's when we finally see the pain and the hurt in somebody else where, again, before we... It's not that bad, you big baby. And then sometimes it works the other way around, right? When we first weep the tears of the world, as one writer puts it. We find that it awakens a personal need. This is their writing, allowing us permission to express lament for things and experiences in our own lives. And in all of this, all of this lamenting, naming reality, identifying our part of it, all, 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 all of this, the many aspects of lamenting, it all gives us hope. So that's the strange, weird part. Like I think in Romans, Right, Paul says when, when we lament with those who are lamenting, what? The lamenting, the overall lamenting actually goes down, right? And we, when we join in joy and the joy of other people, the overall amount of joy actually goes up, right? The sum of the parts is greater, something like that. I can't remember how that phrase goes. You get the idea. So let's see what a biblical lament sounds like and how some of this plays out. This is from Psalm chapter 80. We're going to look at the entire, the entire psalm, yes, the entire psalm. Starts off, verse 1 and 2, as many chapters do. It says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. It's like the, psalm, the psalmist is picturing God snoozing in bed, covers over his head. Like it's really, really early in the morning and, and terrible things are happening. It's like, get out of bed, God. Like my wife does this to me many, many times. I love staying in bed in the morning. Like, get out of bed. There are things happening in our world and you're sleeping. This is what the Israelites were saying to God. You're sleeping. Wake up. I know it's really weird. What, what, what's with Joseph and, and Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh? Here's kind of the idea, right? Israel. His name was originally Jacob. So we call Israel Jacob. Jacob we call Israel, the nation, both names. Well, it can also be called by the name of Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. And by extension, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And in people's minds, the tribe of Benjamin is always associated with Ephraim and Manasseh because they descended from the same mom, Rachel, right? They traveled and camped together in the wilderness. Take a look at your wilderness maps, right, where all the tribes camp. These three tribes always camp together. I guess God said, right, you know, they got the same descended mother and, right, they ought to get along, right? The Jews didn't always get along, the many tribes. And they had contiguous territories, right? They were all kind of centered right in between northern Israel and southern Israel, Judah. They're right in the middle. Ephraim and Manasseh were northern tribes. And so in this passage, we, you know, scholars are kind of divided. Is this, this, this writer talking to the entire nation of Israel? Or is it maybe the psalmist is from the south and he's mourning for the loss of the north? He feels for their brother tribes, right? He's basically saying, God, we are not whole unless we're all here. We, we, we've been broken apart. A part of us is suffering right now. And the psalmist cries out to God, rescue our brothers. Or it's for the whole nation. It, it, scholars kind of differ either way. The thing to notice, this is very important here, throughout the lament, light is equal to God's salvation, right? I want you to keep that kind of in mind, kind of like my Christmas lights, right? There's salvation when the lights work. Lament continues, verse three, it says this, restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. The light that gives us the hope of salvation isn't a flashlight, it's not a torch, right? In our mind, every time I see the word, you are a light, you're salt. I think of a salt shaker and a little flashlight or a candle, something along those lines. But no, the light is from his face shining upon us, his face, he, him looking at us. That, that's that's what, the, what all the light comes from is when God sees us, he hears us, and he actively addresses and attends to our needs, right? That's the light of the world. We go to him in darkness, in the darkness of our life, and we explain it to him, and he, and he looks and he turns to us full face, right? You know what that means when you're hurting and the one you love looks you full in the face. You know that they're hearing you, they're feeling you. They're not watching TV at the same time and kind of listening to you. This echoes one of the people's favorite blessings from the time of Arab, Aaron. Excuse me. Number six, 24 and 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The psalmist is hearkening back to those days when they were traveling. Remember when God's face shined on us, when, when Aaron would bless us, when we would leave church in the morning and the day would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Lord, bring, bring us back to those beautiful days. And then in verses four and six, four through six, a set of questions accusing God of being behind everything. Right, God, this is entirely your fault. Their perspective. And God's doing nothing about the situation, no matter whose fault it is. And guess what, all the nations are laughing at us and they're laughing at you too, God, listen to this. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies, they mock us. And then for a second time, restore us. God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And then the psalmist changes the metaphors where God had been the good shepherd, right, in the 
people of Israel, his sheep, his flock. Now the people of God are, are like a vine, right? And, and God apparently owns a vineyard, right? So it shifts here from the flocks to the vineyard. You transplanted a vine from Egypt, right? You get the idea. Kind of why he brought Joseph into it. Joseph was the one that got famous in Egypt, right? And I don't know if you remember this, but when Jacob gives his prophecies, his how my boys will turn out, Joseph is, is going to be a flourishing vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. This is in the promised land. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Lord, the vine that you planted in the promised land, that you transplanted from Egypt, right, your people, has flourished. It has flourished in the past. Its branches reach as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river, the Euphrates River, east to west. Massive, massive amount of land. Why have you broken down its walls? We were once so incredible, and now you have deliberately broken down the walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes. Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. God had broken the once mighty nation, and the psalmist is just saying, why, why? I'm thinking he knows, and I'm thinking what's happening here is during the lament, the psalmist is coming to recognize, oh, this isn't on you, God. And it takes some time to arrive there. This isn't entirely on you, God, is it? I guess we had a part to play in it, too. And then for a third time, the plea, third time, the plea. Only this time the request is slightly different. Where before it had been restore us, restore us, this third time it's returned to us. And that's a huge, huge difference. Subtle, but it's a huge, huge difference. Easy to pass over. Look down from heaven and see. It's a bit clearer when we look at the words that they would have appeared. If, you, if, if this were in Hebrew and you were reading it in Hebrew, here's how it would appear. Turn us turn us, turn to us, and then we're going to come in verse 19 to a, a, a third request, really the fourth overall, turn us. Now there's something very, very important going on here, and again, that you don't see it unless we kind of look at it in these words. The third time the psalmist asked God to turn around. Why? So that his face will once again shine on us. Right in the first, third, excuse me, the first, second, and fourth times, the psalmist is saying, we've turned our backs on God, so God has naturally turned his back on us. This is the point of view of the psalmist for the first two stanzas here, right? We still turn us, right? Turn us. So the psalmist asked three times that God would turn us around to face him, but this time it's different, right? It's not like, right, if we turn away, he'll turn away also. So if we turn back, we somehow make him turn back, right? That's not actually the way it works. We don't, we can't force God to bless us, to turn back to us. It doesn't work that way. If I'm lost, that's on me. But if I'm saved, that's got to be entirely God's doing. It's got to be him. And until he turns us by his prevenient grace, which is how he does that, we cannot and we will not, we do not seek God on our own. We just don't. 
We need God to turn and face us before we have any prayer of getting ourselves turned around and straight back on the right road. Without God, we, we can't do it. Passage continues. Watch over this vine, the root of your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself, your vine is cut down, it's burned with fire at your rebuke. The people perish. Again, tragically, God has cut the vine down that was planted. But the psalmist isn't without hope. The psalmist cannot explain it, right? It's happening, it's your fault, and there's nothing that we can do about it. We know this, God. This has to be you. This has to be you, 100%. God's rescued him before, and he's, certainly he can do it again, right? This is, this is the point of view of the psalmist, and this is the heart of a lament. Anger and accusations and questions, but at our heart, when we finally settle down, God, I know you heard me. Sorry I yelled. <laughs> but you, you get it. God's like, I do. I, I do, I, I get it, I understand. So it says, let your right hand, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Again, sometimes some commentators, this is messianic. It's the Christ. Others, it's, it's a king coming. Others, it's the nation of Israel that is his right hand. Right? All of those are actually true. And then for the fourth time, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Four times the community cries out for restoration to God Almighty or, or God of angel armies, verbatim, that God Almighty, God of angel armies. They readily acknowledge that their salvation and their destiny entirely in his hands, right? They'll have a part to play. They'll need to turn themselves around once he gives them the ability. But it's all got to start with God. In the season, the Christmas season, the Advent season, with all the lights, it might be easy to rush past the lament, to disregard the vast number of psalms that are actually laments, right? to rush to the happy parts of the story, the Christmas story, get to the baby, get to the baby. But that would miss the beauty in the midst of the grief there is hope, even, even in lament. Very quickly, lament helps us remember. Kind of a recap here, right? God is big enough for the entire human experience, all, all the ugly parts, all the parts that we think he doesn't know about because we don't voice them. <laughs> That's just silly. God has been faithful and will be again. This is a part of the lament. This is a a process that we sometimes have to go through. That he's been faithful and he'll be faithful again. And lament helps us remember that we're better, we're healthier, and we're more whole when we tell the truth. Right? When we tell the truth to ourselves, when we tr tell the truth to each other, when we tell the truth to God. Right? Everything gets lit up. All the dark corners are gone. How much fear disappears? Think about it when you're growing up once, once the light went on. 
Like somehow the boogeyman and the closet monster and whatever's under the bed, they all just disappear. Just because the light went on. I don't know how, how that works, but monsters don't like light. I, I, as we lament this morning, lamenting opens up confession, opens us to repentance, right? And the beauty of the whole redemption life in the midst of all of that. The cry of every longing heart is to be saved. And again, saved, that means a lot of different things. Saved from my sin. Saved from evil people who have hurt me. The cry of every longing heart is to be saved. And as we reflect on this first Sunday of Advent, and prepare our hearts for communion. In fact, as the ushers, would you please come forward? As we prepare our hearts for communion, we remember that Christ came into the light, came to be the light of the world. But we also hold closely to a God who continues to show up and to love us right in the midst of trauma and hurt and pain and grief and sorrow. Right? We long for that Christ to show up again to meet our deepest needs and heal our, our deepest wounds. And this morning, we simply, we arrive at, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Again, if you feel that you don't have permission to grieve loudly and passionately, you need to read the passion in the book of Mark. Mark isn't trying to make some kind of lofty theological statements. They're there, there's some hints. The other gospel writers do a much better job of it. All Mark is trying to get us to do it seems is to recognize that even Jesus Christ lamented and mourned deeply, screaming out to his God with questions of accusation. Why have you forsaken me? And yes, he wanted everybody to kind of think through that psalm, but I don't think Mark, the gospel writer, I think that was his point. His point was simply to let us know that it's okay to grieve loudly because our Savior did. So as you come and receive communion, recognize that your Savior, he understands. He understands why you sinned. He understands why that person sinned against you. Doesn't excuse any of it. But he says, but by my blood and by my body, I can heal you. I can heal you. But you gotta let me. Heavenly Father, this morning we've, we've paused, we've reflected, and we've pondered what, it, what saving us cost you. But Father, we also read that when all was said and done, 
because of what Christ did, his joy was made complete. It's because he had us in front of him all the time. Father, thank you for seeing us and for understanding us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.